The Tom Woods Show, episode 1230. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, it's not too late to join us aboard this year's Contra Cruise. We've got a slate of special guests for you, headlined by Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute. Join Bob Murphy and me for the event of the year for libertarians. The Contra Cruise. Check it out at ContraCruise.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. Before I get into the subject matter for today, I want to mention a couple things. First, watch this weekend for a bonus episode. Given all the developments in the Catholic Church, I felt like I wanted to address them and get some good commentators on with me to talk about what on earth is happening. So uh, remember, I, I do bonus episodes when I'm talking about things like, well, it could be online business, it could be progressive music, or things that are a little bit off the beaten path for the show. So I'm going to be doing that this weekend as a bonus episode number 1231. So do please watch for that. Secondly, if you hear this in time, note that uh, our friends at Rocket Languages, which uh, I actually know the one of the two creators of Rocket Languages, they're having a Labor Day weekend sale where they're taking 60% off their language courses, but only for the first thousand of them. So as of Friday, August 31st, you can start grabbing them at 60% off. It's a great deal. My daughter has their Japanese course. It's very much worth checking out over at tomwoods.com rocket. Now let's talk about today. Somebody posted on one of my blog posts, or maybe it was a podcast episode, something like the following. Look, I just don't know very much economics, and I have such basic questions. It just goes to show my mind is a tabula rasa when it comes to economics. And so he listed a bunch of questions, and I can understand how somebody without background in economics could have these questions. Some of them have to do with terminology and lingo and just basic concepts that we often take for granted and don't explain. So I thought, what if we take about a half an hour and we go through some of these the most common ones that I've been getting. So I took the questions that this gentleman offered to me, and then I went into my private group at supportinglisteners.com, and I said, are there other questions like this, questions that you feel like you're afraid everybody knows the answer and you don't want to look silly so you don't ask? But go ahead and ask because you're going to be helping other people if you do ask. So what I did was I compiled a bunch of questions that I thought would be useful to get everybody up to speed on, and I thought I'd have Jeff Herbner come on. We would answer them together. Now, Jeff has been a guest, as you know, a number of times on the show in the past. He teaches at mylibertyclassroom.com. He is the department chairman of the uh, economics department over at Grove City College, which is, by the way, just a top-notch four-year school. Absolutely top-notch. Wonderful people. Outstanding economics department. Just fantastic. So it's, it's about an hour outside of Pittsburgh very much worth looking into. Jeff is also assistant editor of the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics and just a a wonderful man and friend. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Let me run through a couple of the first ones. And then, because as I say, I feel like if somebody has this question, then chances are a chunk of people have these questions. And these are questions that maybe people feel like I better not ask because it sure sounds like everybody already knows this stuff. And this is so elementary, I better not ask it. You know, like people would would say, sometimes with Contra Krugman, people would ask Bob and me, you guys are talking a lot about treasuries, but I don't even know what that means. 
You know, like we use this lingo, like everybody in the world knows what it means. And we ought to step back and examine that lingo from time to time. So somebody wants to know, uh, so as I say, I'll take the first couple. And unless I make a grave error, we'll assume that they're okay. Not possible. (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, He says, what exactly does it mean to create wealth? Does that mean mine for more gold? When we think about creating wealth, the way I think of it would be something like this. I mean, first of all, that there's more stuff after you've created the wealth than there was before. Now, it doesn't have to be physical stuff, I suppose. It could be that now I have more masseuse services than I had before. But my thought would be something like this, that I have a business and I'm earning a profit and I take the profit and I use that profit to buy some machine that allows me to produce more goods, more widgets than I produced before. And I can produce them with with, let's say, fewer other inputs like labor. So instead of 10 workers to produce 100 widgets, I can use five workers and produce 1,000 widgets. So I can now take, there are a couple of consequences of this. The five workers I no longer need are now available to produce new things that couldn't have been produced before because they were tied up producing widgets. And so now every extra thing those five people are now released to go produce is the creation of wealth. Now we have something that we did not have before. Then secondly, maybe it's the case that the market doesn't even need a 1,000 widgets. Maybe really I can only make selling 750 widgets really work. So whatever other resources other than labor that would have gone into the production of the extra 250 widgets are also released for use in some other project somewhere else. And that lowers the price of whatever those inputs are because now there's more available And so that involves an increase in wealth because now other firms can get hold of the inputs that they need more inexpensively because I've released a bunch of them to the market. So that's what I think of when I think of the creation of wealth. How do you feel about that? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, I think the key uh, point is to uh, reiterate that in order to know in the social order whether wealth is being created or not, we need a, a metric of economizing we need to be able to tell, like you said, whether or not profit in the uh, process of production that we've uh, put into motion. And when it is, then, of course, we've generated wealth, we've created wealth, because um, the resources that that have been drawn into a production process have a lower opportunity cost in other production processes than the value, the monetary value of the uh, output that's produced in that process. So anytime um, a profit is earned, the losses are avoided, then we're engaged in a process of wealth creation. All right, let me do another one. The person says, this is something that he's heard said. Quote, the Fed kept the dollar low by lowering interest rates and flooding the market with cheap money. So I guess his actual question is about the term cheap money. He says, okay, cheap money, but a dollar is a dollar. So how could money be cheap? And the answer to that question is when we use the expression cheap money, what we're thinking about is if somebody were to lend you a dollar, You couldn't just say, well, let's say you've lent me a dollar. I'll pay you back a dollar a year from now because, after all, a dollar is a dollar. But what the issue is is a dollar today and a dollar a year from now. You can't say a dollar today is a dollar a year from now. It's not because, obviously, a dollar a year from now is not as serviceable to you. So the question is, given that no one's going to, you know, other than your friend or something, but, you know, nobody's going to lend you one dollar and expect – just $1 back. I mean, think of it obviously more like $10,000 because then it really would, $1 you wouldn't really notice. But with $10,000, you're not going to get a loan for $10,000 and then just repay nominally $10,000 in a year. You're going to be expected to pay maybe $10,500. 
So that's because of the interest rate. You're going to have to pay interest on that. But if interest rates come down, then maybe you might have to pay back only 10200 And in that sense, money has become cheaper. Uh, not that, you know, it's, of course, a dollar is a dollar, but the act of borrowing money has become less expensive for you. It's less dear because the interest payments you have to make are now lower. And that's what we mean by cheap money. So do you accept that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's better to say cheap credit. And the idea is... It is. It is better to say cheap credit. Yes. And And the conceptual distinction is that money itself really has two prices. Uh, the one that you were explaining, we might call the intertemporal price. It's when people trade present money for future money, and that's what's being referred to uh, when people say cheap money. They're referring to the lowering of the interest rate, as you suggested, and we should better say cheap credit. And then uh, money has a spot price as well. The exchange value of money right now in the present against good, the purchasing power of money. And people, when they say cheap money, don't usually mean that uh, the purchasing power of money has gone down. They're usually talking about the intertemporal price of money. All right. Now I'm going to throw a couple over to you, uh, also from the same person. Now, for this one, I think you need to go into how the money supply is increased because only then can you really make sense of how it is decreased. But he says, when you say shrink the money supply, you mean like pile up all the physical cash and burn it? And so that's a legitimate question. But of course, what we're talking about here in an economy like ours is that the physical cash is not so much the issue because that's such a small portion of the the money. It's it's electronic money. So maybe can you explain, uh, again, super basically what this process looks like? Right. So it's a distinction we we like to uh, say between money proper, like you said, uh, physical cash, and claims to money that perform the medium of exchange function, like checking account balances, which are just claims to money that can be cashed out at par uh, on demand. So the money stock, the total amount of uh, the medium of exchange that people have to uh, use to buy things, is made up of the sum of money proper plus money substitutes. And uh, while the physical cash uh, tends not to be destroyed, it can be augmented by the Fed's uh, printing, uh, but uh, not usually uh, actually reduced by uh, shredding money and so on. So most of the time when the money stock is shrinking, as you say, it's shrinking because the claims to money are shrinking. The banks are contracting that portion of the money stock. So let's say... um I mean, basically, you have to think about the process of whereby the Fed... Well, in fact, you know what? Let's go right into that. I'm going to skip right into that question because really, in a way to to get this one, let's go back even further to what exactly is the process by which the Fed increases the money supply, number one, because people hear this a lot, but they want to know what does that look like? And then secondly, let's go into what does it mean when we say the Fed is you know, Fed wants to lower interest rates. Well, what are they talking about? And then thirdly, I want to know, what is the, and don't worry, I'll go over all these again. But the third one I would want to throw in there is, what is the relationship between the interest rate that the Fed targets to either lower or raise and the interest rate that I get paid on my savings account at the bank? Is there any relationship between those? So let's start with the first one of these and heaven help me, I can't remember what it was. Oh yeah, yeah, the the Fed increasing the money supply. What does that actually look like? What are the steps? Right. So what the Fed uh, does in in regulating the banking system in commercial banks, they set a uh, required reserve ratio that banks have to hold 
against their money substitutes, their checking account balances that the bank issues. And then by changing, uh, the Fed can uh, engage in a process of changing the amount of reserves that the bank has by simply buying securities that the bank holds from the bank and then paying either in cash or in another form that's considered a reserve. And then the bank with more cash reserve can increase the amount of its uh, checkable deposits, keeping the ratio between checkable deposits and uh, reserves the same. And the normal uh, procedure for this, uh, the Fed buys from banks um, United States Treasury certificates, bills, notes, and bonds. And the procedure is called open market operations because the Fed operates the buying of these uh, securities through what's called the quote-unquote open market primary dealers. So that's the first brief account of the first uh, part. Now, on the second part about lowering the interest rate, so here we can see the effect of this uh, once we add in what the bank is doing to generate the additional uh, money substitutes. How do they increase the checking account balances of the customers when the Fed has provided them with more reserve when the banks sell treasury securities to the Fed, they get paid in reserves. So what the bank does is simply extend loans. They, they just make more loans to people who they weren't lending to before the uh, additional reserves gave them the uh, required ability to uh, increase their checkable deposits. So they just make loans and they write the loan balances into the checking accounts of their customers. And so that's where the additional money substitutes come from, and the additional credit supply that the banks are just creating by issuing checking account balances, this additional supply of credit will make interest rates lower than they otherwise would be. And then the final question about the target and the market interest rates. So the Fed conducts monetary policy with this, uh, as they see it, a feedback mechanism. They, they're trying to manipulate market interest rates but they they can't directly control those. They The banks are the ones that actually issue the additional supply of credit. The Fed doesn't, they haven't yet at this point at least completely socialized uh, the allocation of credit. They let the banks allocate the credit. And so the effect that Fed policy has on interest rates in the market economy depends upon how the banks respond to the Fed's increasing the bank's reserves by buying securities from banks. And so the Fed tries to manage all this with a target interest rate, and the interest rate that they target is the one that they can have direct influence over, which is the interbank overnight lending rate called the federal funds rate. This is the interest rate that banks charge each other for lending to each other reserves. And the Fed can, uh, by again, buying securities from banks, can increase the supply of reserves that banks have overall to work with. And so by increasing the supply of that form of credit, they can uh, manipulate the federal funds interest rate. They can directly affect it by increasing its supply. And then it's up to the banks to, again, expand their own commercial credit on top of those increased reserves. And uh, how they do this, I mean, in a normal situation, they would just begin to lend more, say, into mortgages or into auto loans or whatever it is. And then the interest rates in the market for those things, credit card interest rates and so on, would uh, uh, would move down if the Fed's engaged in expansionary policy. 
But, of course, this is a uh, loose connection. The banks recently, since the uh, financial collapse, haven't been lending uh, in lockstep with the uh, increase in Fed funds or reserves. And so short-term interest rates have fallen dramatically relative to long-term, relative to sort of normal interest rates that we think of as existing in the market for autos and houses and uh, and so on. Jeff, let me just revisit quickly the issue of shrinking the money supply again in light of how you've described the process of expanding the money supply because the Fed can increase the money supply. But then, as you say, it's the ball then is in the court of the banks because if the banks just sit on any additional money and they don't lend it out, then it more or less just sits there and that's the end of the process. It's the lending out of the, the money and the multiplication of the money by means of loans that really gets the process going. And once those loans, let's say, get repaid, if they get repaid to the bank, with because basically the bank is creating money in the, in the course of extending these loans. In fact, let's stop right there. Let's stop right there. I want to make sure every step is covered here. When I say the bank is actually creating money when it extends the loans, but we've also said the Fed creates the money that the bank then creates loans off of, can, can you just go super duper simple through that? Right. So let's take just a concrete case to, again, make it as simple as possible. Let's say the Fed goes to uh, a bank and they say, we'd like to buy a million dollars of the treasury securities that you're holding. And the bank agrees. They you know, negotiate a price and the bank agrees. And so the bank ships the treasury securities off to the Fed and the Fed delivers a million dollars in cash to the bank. And the Fed may have just printed this money, right? So it's an additional, that would be in addition to the overall money stock. So the Fed, you can just print the money and they ship it by armored car to the bank. And now the bank has a million dollars of cash in its vault, but the Fed has already uh, has this uh, reserve requirement regulation for the bank that the bank only needs to hold a 10% cash reserve against its checking account balances overall of all of its customers. And so with 1 million more in cash, the bank can now issue $10 million more in checkable deposits and still be meeting a 10% reserve requirement ratio. Uh, the way in which the bank gets $10 million more in the checking account balances of its customers is to extend its customers' loans or to take on new customers who want, who want loans. And then they just write the uh, a loan balance into the checking account of their uh, customers. And they can do this to the extent of $10 million now. This would be the creation of what we could call this bank money, or again, the technical economic phrase is a money substitute. All right. Now let's, uh, let's see. How about this question? Somebody wants to know, when we have a recession, where does all the money go? And what he means by that is the stores have the same amount of food and there are just as many families needing to buy it. What gives? And that actually is a good question because it's not like the day that it's announced that we're in recession, the physical composition of the economy has changed. It's not. It's a mispricing of things in the economy. It's the same things, but there's been an improper valuing of different things. So it's not so much that money disappears. It's that some things in the economy could be housing, could be stocks that people believe to have a certain value. They believe this on the basis of well, I hate to use faulty information, but in a way, it is a kind of faulty information. That they uh, sometimes it's it's because people caught up in a boom are giving them bad advice, or sometimes it's they're just looking at prices and they're trying to make an estimate of what their house is worth and things like that. But some of these things, 
got their inflated prices through artificial means. And people didn't realize that. And eventually they realized that in the recession when people all of a sudden are no longer willing to pay that much for houses or they're no longer willing to pay that much for other goods or for corporate stock or whatever. And so these prices then fall. It's not that there isn't as much money anymore. It's that there's been a, a, an overvaluing of some things and undervaluing of other things because of, you know, for artificial reasons, because of, let's say, the intervention of a monetary authority. And in the recession, you're just kind of sorting all this out and repricing factors of production, even consumer goods, in line with what consumers really want. So it's not that the stock of things has changed. It's that the way we look at them, evaluate them, evaluate their relative scarcity, whatever, that has changed. Now, how would you add to that or correct that? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. There's one more element I'd add to it, and that's the uh, change in uh, cash holdings. So it isn't that the money disappears necessarily. I mean, it might, some, as you were talking about before, some of the bank-created money might disappear in the liquidation of loans. But the main impetus toward the downward movement of prices overall is uh, the increase during a recession, the increased movement that people have toward holding money as opposed to buying things. So they're, they've extended their debt uh, too far, and now they want to pay it down, and so they quit buying things. Uh, and this puts even more downward pressure on in a more general array of goods uh, in the economy than you would think would occur if the phenomena were just that. Well, okay, during the boom, we, we shifted expenditure because of all this new money into uh, certain goods like buying more houses, and we way boosted their prices and had these asset price bubbles. And now we see that that's a mistake, and so we take the money out of that and we spend it on other things. And so housing prices fall, but prices of other things go up. So that's what you might think without this extra element of uh, the movement toward liquidity, as they say in finance, or the movement toward holding cash during the recession. This, again, is a uh, perfectly reasonable move that people make uh, to restore their uh, financial situation from the uh, malinvested positions that they've taken during the boom. Jeff Mises called time an irreversible flux. So let me take just a minute to tell my listeners how they can save a lot of time. If you're like me, you have a million books you want to read, and that pile just keeps getting taller and taller. Well, what if you could distill some of those books you want to read down to the 15 minutes worth of the most important stuff? Think of the time you'd save and how much substance you'd still get. Well, that's what you can do with Blinkist, which is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to that core 15 minutes so you can read or listen to them all on your phone. With Blinkist, you'll expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere. I like to listen to Blinkist when I'm driving around, which I'm doing an awful lot in town, taking the kids here and there. The Blinkist library is massive, from timeless classics like Think and Grow Rich to current bestsellers like Skin in the Game. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com woods to start your free seven-day trial. You can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com slash woods. Let me ask this one because this is kind of a variation on cost push theories of inflation. Somebody wants to know, how exactly does a universal basic income 
not directly result in inflation, negating the individual monetary gains that each person would receive. And now he's not saying if it's funded through inflation. He's just saying would it of itself because he clarifies and says, maybe I have a flawed understanding of inflation, but if everyone gets $1,000 on top of their regular income, irrespective of where it comes from, doesn't that necessarily mean that $1,000 is worth less than it was worth prior to everyone receiving it? I hope this is making sense. So let me jump in on that. If the universal basic income, let's say it is $1,000 per person, if that's paid out of just actually creating the money out of thin air, printing up $1,000 for everybody, then yes, that would mean that since the stock of goods in the economy is unchanged and the only thing that's changed are the pieces of paper allowing you to bid on those goods, all that means is that everybody's going to bid up the prices of those goods accordingly. So that's going to be a wash. But if it's a matter of – see, here the key thing is irrespective of where it comes from. <laughs> well, if it came from taking money from rich people and giving it to poor people, that would not – cause inflation. In the same way that if the price of oil goes up, a lot of people think that causes inflation through cost push because everybody uses oil for something. And oil is just the lifeblood of the economy. So if the price of oil goes up, all prices will go up. The, the flaw in that reasoning is if I now have to spend more money on oil because the price is higher, I have less money to spend on all other goods. And so although, yes, the price of oil goes up, there's a slight downward pressure on other prices because I have to I have to abstain from some of my purchases in order to be able to buy the oil I want to buy. And so it's a, it's a it's not that all prices go up. It's that un, unless again, unless inflation is involved, unless the unless there's a, a increase in the money supply, but the the point is uh, that this increase in the price of one commonly used thing doesn't bring up all other prices. It just leaves me with less disposable income to buy those other goods, and that actually, if anything, lowers their prices. And that's exactly what would happen in the case of just giving everybody $1,000. I mean, yeah, the, the people who get the 1000 they get an extra 1000 in purchasing power, but the people from whom the 1000 was taken lose the 1000 in purchasing power. So there's no net. I mean, it could be that the that relative prices change because maybe poor people spend their money on different goods from what rich people might have spent, but there's no general upward pressure on all prices. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I would say the only other uh, the only other aspect you were just saying there at the end is that generally, as an empirical matter, the rich uh, save a greater portion of their income than the poor, and so we we not only see a shift of. Uh, movement of, uh, you know, higher prices for the consumer goods that are bought by poor people, but the the funds taken from the richer would tend to have gone into the purchase of capital goods. And so we, we'd also see a movement uh, away toward capital accumulation and toward, toward more present-oriented production. It would be a reasonable uh, supposition to make. Let me give you one that is, um, you know, I kind of know the textbook answer, but people are saying that they're left kind of cold by the textbook answer. And that is the question of a millionaire versus somebody at the poverty line. And the claim that, well, we can't make interpersonal comparisons of utility. Who's to say that the poor person values an extra dollar more than the millionaire values an extra dollar? But they're saying, look, yeah, I get that I can't compare that. And it is conceivable that the millionaire could just be insanely devoted to money and the poor person could be a monk. I get it. But it's hard to claim that a guy dying of thirst in the desert 
wouldn't value that dollar for the glass of water more than the millionaire would value the dollar that he'll burn, you know, as he's rolling a cigar out of it. So how do you, is there a way you can address this that would sound more convincing, I guess? Well, one uh, angle on it, I think, is just to note that what is typically being called for in redistribution of income on the basis of this kind of comparison that the poor would get greater benefit from the income than the rich is uh, state coercion. It's it, they're, they're calling for the state to forcibly take uh, money from the rich and give it to the poor. So I think the only way you could actually demonstrate that it was advantageous to the rich to make the transfer is for it to be voluntary. Why don't we just uh, try to persuade the rich guy who's trying to uh, you know, frivolously use uh, money that it would be better spent, that both he and the recipient would be better off if the money was donated to the poor or uh, you know, transferred to someone uh, who had a greater need for resources than the rich guy does. All right, let me give you a couple more and then I'll, I'll let you go. First one is where does money get its value from? Well, money gets its value, like all goods, uh, get their value from the uh, subjective value that people place on it in performing the function that the money performs as a means, which is uh, the medium of exchange function. So once we have a medium of exchange, people value it for the facilitation that it provides in making their exchanges in a very uh, efficacious way so that they can avoid the problems of barter. So in that sense, it's no different than conceptually than the value for any good. Any good is valued only as a means to an end that the person uh, valuing it uh, desires to, to attain. And then finally, let's try this one. What function do stock traders perform that entitles them to their profits? Stock traders in the sense of brokers and so on? Yeah, I guess so. I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess that's what they mean. Yeah, okay. you know, a stockbroker. Yeah, so the broker or the uh, is just the middleman, and the middleman uh, always performs the function of facilitating an exchange between two parties. And so you have one party who wants to sell shares of stock, and another who potentially wants to buy them. But these two parties, on their own, may not know of each other. They may. Uh, when they, if they do know each other, may, they may have to go through a long negotiation in order to settle on a price and so on and so forth. And the broker, just like any good middleman, facilitates that exchange. So he, he brings the parties together. He maybe provides a, a guarantee uh, to the parties of delivery of the goods and so on so that their, the exchange can be facilitated. So there are all sorts of services that middlemen can provide that are beneficial enough for the trading persons, the persons engaged in the trade, to uh, pay for. It's sometimes helpful, by the way, to think, this is not directly related to the question, but to remember that the service that a bank provides in in lending money is an example of a middleman. Because how would you, on your own, be able to go out and say to people, all right, I know a bunch of you would like to save money, and since I'd really like to be able to find worthy projects to lend money to, I want to go up to each of you and see how much interest would I need to pay you to get you to give me some money so that I could then go out and find credit-worthy borrowers to lend it to. I mean, you as an individual, there's no way, right, you'd be able to do like, And you as an individual, you don't even want to do that. All you want is money for your project, or all you want is save your money and earn some interest. That's all you, you only want one half of that. But the bank finds the two halves of that equation. They find the people who want to save. They find the creditworthy projects. They bring these together without even the two sides having to know each other. The bank also performs the function of assessing the creditworthiness of the other side so that the person saving the money doesn't have to think that much. Doesn't it? Now, of course, 
We think even less because of um, deposit insurance. We don't even think about the quality of the bank's portfolio. That's a separate matter. But in a genuine free market, uh, even then, I would more or less say I can, you know, I can trust the specialists at the bank to make good decisions with the money. And then this, this is a and a really important and outstanding middleman service that the bank is providing. And we miss so many of these wonderful services that are provided to us because we're taught to hate and loathe and despise certain classes of people. So we don't stop to think, well, what social function are they performing? And that's what we ought to do, whether it's stockbrokers or or people who trade in futures markets, let's say. And it seems like, well, gee, they're earning some profit and I don't even get what it is that they're doing. All right, so take a few minutes to try to get it. What is the social function that they're they're performing? If if they're in futures markets, that just means that they're they're smoothing out the price level over time, so that let's say if there's if they anticipate that there's going to be a bad harvest coming up, well then instead of having the price spike the second that bad harvest takes place, we anticipate the coming bad harvest by means of moves made in the futures markets that we start to see prices rising now. And now we can make our plans, we can look for substitutes, uh, whatever, because now we see the price starting to rise. Now, instead of this immediate and shocking price rise that would occur in the absence of futures markets, that would be harder for people to cope with. So my point is simply, I'm jumping in on this just because we're not exactly taught to admire futures traders or bankers, but these two, like stockbrokers, perform functions for society that we're not exactly taught to appreciate. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And uh, just to extend your point uh, one step further, this middleman functioning is embedded in the uh, activity of all entrepreneurs. They're they're all doing this function. They're bringing together disparate groups who wouldn't be able to come together on their own initiative, the producers in, in a division of labor and the consumers of the of the product. And they're bringing them together for their mutual benefit. So this is a generalizable uh, feature of the of the market, and just because the middlemen in financial markets are not visibly engaged in physical you know activity of producing and so on, doesn't mean they're not performing this function. They are, in fact. That's an excellent point. All right, I'm going to let you run because I want to try to. I've been doing episodes that are a little on the long side lately, and that that's fine once in a while. But I do like these to be kind of commute length. But I think we hit. I mean, we must have hit. Uh, I don't know, eight questions at least that I am sure some folks listening have secretly wondered about, and I hope that's at least a a good beginning in in helping them. And of course, I might add, by the way, that you teach a very, very step-by-step introduction to Austrian economics over at libertyclassroom.com, and I also have that course available. Let's see. No, no, not it's not that one. It's your – Jeff also did a course where you went through – a very, very popular mainstream economics textbook that's used in colleges, and you critiqued every chapter of it from an Austrian perspective. Absolutely great. So if you're not over at libertyclassroom.com yet, uh, you should be, because in addition to the course material that Jeff has created, you can ask Jeff questions in the forums anytime you like. If you're a basic plus or a master member, you can ask him questions, and he's uh, an outstanding question answerer. Uh, It's just amazing. So, uh, Jeff, great talking to you. Thanks for your time. You too, Tom. Thanks. All right, folks, here is a fun one. This is a fun one. What a fun website and a neat thing to know about if you are a traveler. I've got a listener whose mother has a bed and breakfast in Placerville, California, Ponderosa Ridge. It's a bed and breakfast located in the heart of the state of Jefferson. Not all of California is crazy San Francisco, she says. Placerville, also known as Hangtown, was one of the most important locales during the California gold rush. 
And so when you struck it rich, you would go to Placerville to spend your newfound riches. Sutter's Mill, where gold was discovered, is located only a few miles away. The bed and breakfast is located on Apple Hill and has over three acres of apple orchard. And guests can pick apples in the fall when they're in season. So what a wonderful thing to check out if you're in the area and passing through. The website is ponderosaridgebnb.com. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1230. And as I say, what a wonderful thing to check out. How did they get this free publicity? You know the answer to that. They got their web hosting through me, through my link. And I'll give them publicity and lots of other goodies, including membership in my bloggers group, which is our little mutual help group, but also tutorials and everything else to help you be more effective as a website or blog owner. All right, let's see. What else are we doing here? Uh, I just want to remind you again this weekend, I got that bonus episode coming out. It's, It's probably not for little ears, let's say. And there will be a few controversial things said in it, but I know you folks can take that. I know I got some tough, tough listeners here who can take controversy, I know, and I think you'll enjoy it because we're just going to pull no punches and um, you'll want to tune in. So that's that. I got to go take a nap now. See you later. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time.